Hey, it's Mark here, and welcome to the next edition of the Employee Survival Guide, where I tell you, as always, what your employer does definitely not want you to know about, and a lot more. Hey, it's Mark, and on today's episode, I wanted to talk about uh, issues that I'm dealing with uh, to bring to your attention. And this really is the issue of the games employers play and knowing when the employer is playing the games with you. Um, so why does this come about? I uh, take intake calls, consultations uh, every day. And recently I've had two um, consults on the same day that uh, made me think about uh, something I wanted to, to share with you. Uh, both individuals who I talked to um, – came across with patterns of behavior that employers were engaging them. Um, and you have to understand, when I'm doing an intake call, uh, the person is sending us information with a very brief amount of data uh, in an email or um, that uh, my assistant will take down. And uh, we, from that, those facts, essentially a very basic fact pattern about uh, what's happening with them, I then have a call. And the through the call, I'm able to begin to figure out the patterns of behavior that the employer is engaging in uh, to help me understand well what what type of case is this? Um, what do I tell this individual that they're you know the problem they're experiencing? Because the the caller in the consultation is only seeing things from their vantage point of um, a it's emotional. There's drama happening. Um, there's maybe there's a performance review or whatever that's happening, and I have to uh, really poke into the fact pattern and ask questions uh, in a very rapid file fi uh, style to uh, obtain information from them. And what I discover is that most people, in, by no fault of their own, they're starting the process um, – and I'm going to explain now a continuum that happens, a transference that occurs from the initial call point to the end of the call that takes place. And that's really what I want to share and also what the gimmicks and nonsense the employer um, that we find out through this very, very quick call, you know, lasting anywhere from a half hour to an hour depending upon the seriousness of the case. So the, the continuum is the person calls. There are a great deal of stress what's happening. Whatever the issue is taking place, it's generally a severance negotiation or they've been terminated or put on a PIP. But there's a lot of drama. And the the prospective client is really uninformed about what's happening to them. This is a very common circumstance. And it really gets to the first point of here's the games the employers play. The employer is not educating their employees deliberately about the rules of engagement at work. And what I'm about to say is going to sound really familiar. Everybody goes to work. They have careers. They want to have their resume um, and their career experiences. They, 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 their, their life becomes their work. Uh, vice versa. Um, their identities meld with their jobs. Uh, there's a level of trust. Uh, I've been here for the company for eight years. Thus, I'm a loyal employee. Meanwhile, the employer on the same set of facts is saying, well, you're age 54 or your uh, sexual orientation is this and we have a headcount reduction or the company's not doing well. Um, and they're, they're, they're just opposite sides of the same facts. And most employees are now, I guess, realizing that 
the employers are not there to protect them. HR is not to be trusted. Um, my wife sent me a, a, a an article from I guess it was CNBC this morning that um, there's now what's called loud quitting. Um, and the date of this podcast is uh, June twenty eighth, two thousand twenty three. So we know about quiet quitting now. There's loud quitting. So employees are becoming aware, and there's a transition to uh, challenging employers and employees speaking out for you know. And it's about time. I've been saying this for a while. To um, employees need to be dealt with in a more reasonable fashion, and they're being you know for years and decades being taken advantage of. But back to the point of employees um, really are not served with appropriate information about the rules of engagement and how to deal with their employer. That is the essence of why I do these podcasts and I think you get that from listening to me after all these years. And this is what I say to people on the phone. So I'm going to take the person on the phone on a console and bring them from point A of you know, drama and just can't believe this is happening. Uh, it's very emotional experiences for, for many people. Um, both of these callers I, I'm referencing, um, you know, had a great deal of difficulty. Um, one was filled with anger, another was filled with anger plus, you know, um, tears related to, you know, the fact that these are two individuals that were both um, in their 50s and well experienced. I mean, we're talking corporate individuals uh, working and later stages of their careers, but just hitting a wall with their employers. And the reason is because they're getting older in this instance. In both these instances, they're getting older. Um, and so what I'm trying to get across to you is that the employer is not going to educate the employees at any stage whatsoever about anything related to their protecting their jobs. I, I think you know that. Why is that? Well, it's the easiest and cheapest way to manage people. It's lack of information. So where do people get their information if they're not going to get it from their employer about, you know, how to manage relationship, it's – I want to say it's the most dysfunctional relationship that we have in existence, the employee-employer. And it's occurring at the same time that you're listening to this other vibe that's out there about DEI and all these social conscious issues and uh, environmental awareness and corporations, all this garbage that's being put out there uh, for marketing purposes. But if the employers – I thought about this the other day. If employers really did care, if they really cared about anything related to DEI or anything related to um, making employees happy and whatever, well, wouldn't you think they would finally do away with this one simple thing and it's called the at-will rule? I know you know this phrase I just made to you, the at-will rule. It essentially says if you didn't know it, but employees can fire you and you can quit anytime you want. But this rule is so destructive and so racially motivated and age-related and everything discriminatory-related and it's used as a, uh, a way to um, get rid of individuals um, and get rid of them legally. Uh, and so if you think that employers really care, they would really, in my opinion, get rid of the at-will rule. Um, but it's, it's coming. Uh, but it's not there yet. And some states have what's called a four-cause termination. I think Montana is the only state that has it. But we're seeing this happening um, to folks. And so these two individuals I'm re referencing, I'm trying to stay on track with what I'm uh, sharing with you, employees don't understand the rules of engagement with their employers. And these little 
podcasts that I put out, these episodes, attempt to target the very issues that I see happening. So I had two calls that made me think about, well, why don't I just talk about the issue of what takes place at the very earliest juncture of the call. The person has experienced some event at work and they're calling me as the employment lawyer. Well, what's that conversation like? And what is it? how does it transition to uh, proactive steps and process? And so I'm going to give it to you. Uh, I'll give you some facts of each one of these, uh, not to disclose who the employer or employees are or what's happening, um, but enough to give you the points of you're going to go from a transition of initial call to end of call having process and roadmap and tools and analytics to think about what steps to take or not. Because when you call an employment lawyer, you're trying to get answers because the employer didn't give it to you. And so you speak to somebody like me who sees – I'm at the front line. I see this crap every day and um, and you walk away with it. But you really have to understand one thing. You don't have to do anything at all. You can always leave your employment, not spend the money on an employment lawyer, okay? And I'll be the first lawyer to tell you that. It, you don't have to spend the money. You can choose to walk away. That's a hard choice for most people because there's a lot of emotion and anger filled there. That same statement was given to both of these individuals on the call. One of the choices was you don't have to do anything at all. You can sign their release. It takes me about 10 minutes to explain the release agreement to you. So long as you understand it, you can sign it. And if there's a non-compete in there, you need to understand that too because that's going to hurt you. Um, but the choice number one is do nothing at all, okay? Or spend an hour to have a lawyer look at the terms and explain the severance agreement to you and sign it and you're done. The second and hardest choice for people because they can't let it go. Why can't they let it go? Because – they feel that there's an injustice, an unfairness. Uh, one individual used the word um, due process. There was no due process in the thing. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to break the, the the issue here. There is no due process in employment related with your employer. There's no like rules of engagement. There are laws to prevent discrimination, uh, but that's after the fact. It takes me to analyze the fact pattern and then bring actions against an employer, either privately or in, in court. But that's the policing aspect. But at work, you work for the system of a private government, which I've said before, and that private government dictates to you what it wants to. And no one wants to get involved. You need to understand that loud and clear. Courts do not want to manage the business affairs of companies. Let's take a quick break. It's Mark, and we have a new product for you. It's called the Employee Survival Guide or EmployeeSurvival.com, and it's a site that you can obtain PDF products that uh, I've created myself. I was spending too many hours, way too many, researching and writing about, uh, if, for example, the performance improvement plan or beating them, and the second one uh, about negotiating severance negotiation uh, agreements, two of the most important topics that we see in terms of the web traffic and podcast traffic we have. So check out EmployeeSurvival.com and see uh, if this can try to help you, and you don't need an attorney to use it. Thank you. And if you're not understanding that, well, wake up because it's a reality check. Courts are not there, and they're really reluctant to uh, to police employers unless they really have to if you demonstrate that something law unlawful happened, like, let's say discrimination or a breach of contract. So – as the individual moves from my call, they realize, okay, there's uh, things that happen and I have to interject and pull 
out facts from them and try to pierce through the drama and everything that's happening in the anger to assess what are the claims. And so as I gradually move the clients, these prospective clients through the call of their analysis and answering their question, because they asked me, what the hell can I do about this? I've just had this issue happen at work. Uh, I've been uh, demoted or sidelined or whatever because of some male employee took over my position, which in one case it happened uh, to an individual. Uh, she was the most qualified and the male individual who doesn't do anything um, essentially got promoted over her. And the other individual uh, was let go because the company um, – the, the business was declining. Um, they were um, – and she was uh, highly paid and uh, she had the um, skeletons in the closet information, which I'll get to in a second. Essentially a whistleblower age claim is what she had. So the next stage of the process and the consultation I take these individuals through is look at the uh, the transaction that we're about to describe and it, look at it as a transaction. There is starting at the consultation call and ending at the point you sign the severance agreement, settlement agreement, before you're filing a lawsuit. That is the task. You're not calling the employment lawyer myself to have a lawsuit filed on your behalf because you want some justice. You can do that and I build those cases. But that is the last choice of uh, – last resort choice and you don't want to engage that because, number one, you're going to be bogged down in a litigation for two to three years. You're going to be spending more money you need to know uh, uh, that you want to on legal fees to my office or any employment lawyer. And there is actually a choice to make uh, that people go through and it's simply creating a severance negotiation um, leverage with against your employer to get them to pay you money. So as we move through this process, I say to folks, this is what your task is. Your goal is to get severance. Well, duh, you told me that. And yeah, most people want that, like 90%, 100% of people. Um, and 80% of our clients would uh, will negotiate agreements prior to the lawsuit because – not because the clients are, want that. You've got to understand something. It's the employers who are dictating that outcome. Let me repeat. The employers are making the statistics in my office because they are asking through negotiations to settle cases instead of litigate them. I need you to to understand that. 80% of the time, that's a huge number, okay? The odds are in your favor if you try this process and you have facts. So there's two conditions, facts and claims, of course, and it's going to work in your favor. We just don't know the amount of money. But it's the employers who are driving this. The employers themselves, who are employers? They're businesses. They take risks. When they do these analysis about letting people go and you're one of them, well, they've already assessed your age, your gender, sexual orientation, discrimination aspects if they are any, or maybe they haven't because they don't have an HR department or maybe because they don't have any performance review processes, et cetera. So there's a whole variety of businesses out there and I have to sit there on this very short call and assess in a very quick triage like uh, moment and figure out what's happening. And I'm able to do that because it's, it's like the, uh, the the analogy of the, the matrix and you look at the squiggly lines on the screen from the movie, they can see the patterns and it's the same darn thing because employers are stupid. They do the same redundant things all the time. And there are these are the practices because it's like a stupid uh, computer. They just input in, input out, and there's no analysis of uh, changing directions. 
because they don't want to spend the money on having uh, lawyers assess every single one of these. And I, am, I apologize in, in advance. Uh, a lot of great HR folks out there, uh, but I've encountered many companies that make a lot of dumb mistakes because I don't think they commit the resources to it. I don't think they want to. I don't think they care. And that's the point. You're working in a system that doesn't care about you. Why do you think they would care about the process of your separation to, to uh, in a way that you would feel comfortable with? Of course not. It's all about them. It's selfish. It's a, it's a dysfunctional, sick, twisted uh, relationship that they've covered over the gloss of, oh, hey, we're Google or we're uh, Amazon or we're this large company and we have culture and diversity and all this. Do you get what my point is? They don't give a shit about you. So that's the point of the podcast of – sharing this frontline information to you so you the information sinks in, you share it with other people, do what you will with it. It's just public information. It's out there. It's just being reported to you in a way that's coming through my office and what I'm experiencing and now you know. So back to our two individuals. We've now shared with them that there's a transaction taking place. There's a goal, severance. There's not a litigation because you want to avoid that. Now you know that. So what do you do? And I, I don't mean to be redundant on my part, but I tell the next stage of the conversation goes like this. Well, you gave me a rough fact pattern, but I need to know more. And I can spend three or four hours on the phone with you and I'll learn a lot more. But I want you to, to write out the full narrative in your own words. And, and don't worry about trying to speak to what the law says or whatever. Just write the story of what happened to you. Why is that so important? Because that fact pattern generally from these individuals, people, you know, they're honest. You know, they've been, yeah, obviously terminated or treated unfairly at work. They're going to commit their time and energy to uh, conveying the information that happened to them um, and trying to self-advocate for themselves. And because they probably are good people. Um, I think people who have performance problems know it. And I don't really just... I don't really encounter people who have performance problems. I encounter people in large part about 95% of the time who are good folks, well-performing, and they just get obviously fired. And I say that generically across the board because that's the case. And when there are people who are bad performers, we can spot it very easily. There's a lot of red flags. So a lot of folks get good folks, well-experienced uh, get fired, and we look for uh, presumptions about you know good performance and what takes place and patterns in the games employers play. So that's really the focus of the call. So as we're speaking about the narrative, I'm encouraging folks and peppering them with questions about okay, what happened about age or what happened about sex or hey, if there was uh, issues happening related to whistleblowing, you know anything you're aware of that really bothered you, and people do. F- Come forward. It takes a little time because they're not used to the call. They're not used to having this dialogue about um, – they're, they're seeing it like one optic uh, in terms of this happened to me. My performance was really good. My career has ended. My, you know, it's a lot of internalized stuff that's taking place. And so I have to move them and shift them. And once they become comfortable with the conversation, they do begin to share and they do begin to open up and broaden the horizon of what they're supposed to be looking at for leverage. And I want you to do the same when you're looking at your fact pattern because you can self-diagnose your case if you allow data to come in. So now you have a broad approach. You know that you need to do that. 
look at your own performance. You look at the things that happen to other people at the office. Are other people being discriminated against? Are how are they treated? I mean, you you you're you have so much information being shared with you by other people in your office, your colleagues. If you looked at the data in front of you, you probably can put together a case to present on your own behalf to advocate because the discrimination that happens and the wrongful acts that happen to other people can also benefit you in your own case. So let's, for example, if you know somebody got fired uh, last month for age discrimination and there are facts there and you know it and the person was well qualified and they're like 65 years of age and you know they just got bounced out and then suddenly a, a 30-year-old replaced them, you know, that's a good set of facts to include in your circumstance if you're of an age situation where you're being uh, the writing on the wall, so to speak, and they're targeting you and you're in your 50s, um, you can use that other person's information to help benefit your case. I need to help you understand that. And it's not only just that example. There are a numerosity of uh, unlimited examples. All the information's in front of you. It's just opening your optics to look at a broader range of field like a, a lens on a camera. And you can begin to pull in all this information because no one ever told you what do I include in my narrative? Everything. Everything you witnessed, everything that kind of intuitively bothered the shit out of you, you put in your narrative. And if you can go back and look at other articles or podcasts that uh, I'm putting out, you can see that there's a lot of data in front of you. And I'll just say this so I, I get it on the record for you. The narrative can include just about everything you are exposed to. These are programs and policies of companies, uh, policies to pay severance. If they pay people severance differently, you know, that information is valuable to you. Um, male versus female being paid separately differently because of severance amounts, include that. If there are um, information about, you know, one person's promoted and you're not or they don't get performance reviews and you do or they get pips and you get pips and they don't, um, use uh, text messages, uh, Slack, um, internal communications, um, things you hear. You go to meetings. Uh, one example was uh, the individual in my one of these two consultations I was doing, the person was told at a meeting um, that she was having with her colleague that uh, they were – she was having a meeting with a colleague and then the supervisors walked in unannounced in the middle of the meeting saying, how would you feel about we're going to promote him over you? I mean, right there, you, you know what? That doesn't sound great. I mean, no announcement and there was no ability to apply for the job and it's going to promote. And then they come out the next day and they put a new an announcement to the organization that this person now is taking over this new role that you, this person had. I mean, that's bizarre stuff. I mean, that's not like – so um, it, are there examples of, uh, you know, we have uh, an individual who I spoke with um, – in her fact pattern discussion, I was, I was concerned that there was really an issue that it was a kind of a borderline age aspect because she was uh, approaching her 60s. And um, then I spent more time on the phone. And, and you have to understand, when you're talking with me on the phone, I'm reading the paper every day. I'm reading the Wall Street Journal, New York Times. I'm scanning and looking for information. I'm looking at court cases. I'm, I'm just doing my damnedest job to stay current about what's taking place because that's usually going to be – happening at the uh, organizations where these potential clients are coming from, I need to s see what the patterns are. 
So this runs the gambit of I have a complete understanding of how private equity companies work, you know, number of cruncher type people and really bad culture to large organizations like Google or Amazon. Um, you know, I just have – when you have – when you litigate for so long, you deal with so many people, thousands of people, you begin to piece together these um, – what the real cultures are like in these organizations uh, because you see the outflow of people come to you. So in the second person I spoke to, uh, after I spoke with her, I realized, oh, well, this was uh, an issue that I'd seen recently. Um, It was involving a – I have to be very specific here uh, to avoid a disclosure. So it had to do with the education realm. Um, The corporation provided education I'll just leave it at that. Um, and uh, maybe you get involved with um, – well, I'll just leave it at that. So um, so the, 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 the whistleblowing occurred with you know, representations were given to students, um, misrepresentations. And it took a while to pull that out um, and it, it evolved into this aspect of the, the leverage would be, well, the company not doing well and whistleblower and the leverage became – what? It became the issue of, well, why would the company want this information out there if they're imploding? And they wouldn't. So they'd want to do what? Well, pay money. But you have to have a factual basis claim in the narrative, of course, to specify. And this person has the, the you know, has the skeletons in the closet of the company that's all there because of the level of the position the person was in, et cetera. And so you had through the consultation, the the client realized, the prospective client realized the leverage factor was both age and whistleblowing, and the um, the outcome I don't know yet because it obviously hasn't started yet. But the I wanted to point out the the as you move forward in the process of the call with the, the prospective client, the client begins to understand the transaction, the leverage that's being built there through the discussion, understanding the the ripping the blinders off, so to speak, of what the employer was doing in both of these instances. Um, you know, in the other instance, just to summarize, the individual was a longstanding employee, uh, well-regarded, long history career-wise um, uh, across multiple organizations, and um, both individuals just top of their game, but experiencing these problems of the games employers play. I mean, so you have two having both good performance, uh, and the issue wasn't about the performance. Um, and I need to tell you that uh, that was the other pattern uh, issue is uh, – you can be a really great performer, all right, and an employer can't peg you for performance issues. And I always ask, well, what was the last performance review? And people say, well, well, three months ago was a meets expectation. Well, oh, good. Well, that was an admission of fact, a legal admission of fact that your performance was good. So if the employer tags you with a termination three months later after a performance review of meets expectation, that's a game. That's a, that's a false representation the employer has given you that you've been bounced out for performance. I'm going to ask well, what happened in the three months after your meets expectation? I'm saying meets expectation rating at the date that the manager signed off on it, not because it involved 2022. It occurred in March of 2023. That's what date the person made the admission, that you're a good performer with meets expectation. And that there's nothing that happened in three months' time. And that's it's a um, it's a legitimate answer given by employer performance you know reasons given to terminate, but in reality it's a false pretext. And I need you to understand that's a game that employers play all the time. I see that so often. I need you to understand that. I know I'm overwhelming you with a lot of data, but you're getting the gist here that the the employers are playing a, a large game with you, thinking that they're just abusing you as an employee. 
abusing you. It's, I said it was dysfunctional. I'm not kidding. It's so dysfunctional and so abusive. And people take it because, well, I can't protest because I, I'll ruin my career or um, – you know, uh, you know, whatever the thought processes people have, they're so reluctant to challenge employers. Why? Aren't we allowed to have an equal say in our engagements in these relationships? We have marriages. We have law partnerships. We have business partnerships. We have, you know, democracy. Well, all that doesn't apply in the workplace because you have a private government. Uh, as a University of Michigan professor uh, wrote about, uh, recently, a private government. I, I heard this phrase. I'm like, I was so enthralled. But like, oh, it makes so much sense. It's like, yes, I know it's a dictatorship. I always felt that way. But it's a private government. They determine their own rules. And you're powerless. But are you really? So I'm giving this same level of conversation is occurring in my two meetings that I had in consult, explaining and ripping the blinders off the conversation of their optics of how they viewed themselves. And now you realize there's a whole shit show going on that you never saw being revealed to you because I'm telling you that's what happens. And you begin to see how abusive the process is. And you probably should feel this juncture if you're going through something like this that, wow, oh, this is really making me unsettled and I'm really pissed off and wait a minute, what can I do? So now it's the part of the conversation. The latter part of the consultation I have with folks and I say, okay, here's the roadmap and what you can do with it. The narrative. Remember, I remember talked about that at length. It's the, it's, the, it's the entirety of the case. It's not what I'm going to do with it. It's what your facts say. So the narrative is critical. The next pieces of the puzzle of the process is this. I take the narrative. We investigate it. That's what lawyers do. You pay lawyers to ask questions about the facts and to question you and doubt the accuracy of your facts or pull more information out or all the above. That's what the lawyer, the employment lawyer is doing. Someone has to do that to figure out the stupid effing games the employer has been playing on you. Now you get it. Once we have the affidavit complete, we know what the claims are. We tell the employer, we give them a notice of claims letter. A notice of claims letter spells out in summary form, you know, here's XYZ claims you have. And at the bottom of the letter, uh, it's, it says, don't destroy any documents, preserve. So it's called a litigation hold. And it's used in every single case we have. And it's designed to ensure that they don't destroy their stuff because, you know, emails get backed up and deleted. So – and they also tell their insurance carrier they've received one of these notice of claims. And so it's a very um, legalistic and important document to use. And my opposing colleagues know that I use it all the time. The next letter we send across uh, to the employer is a demand letter. It's just copy and paste of the notice of claims letter. But it leaves out the uh, litigation hold letter and it puts in a demand at the bottom. It starts the bidding because you have to start the bidding because the employer is not going to make you an offer. They're going to make you an offer in your severance agreement, but you need a counter offer in your demand letter. So if they ex asked, uh, presented you a six months of severance, you're going to counter with like you know two years or whatever it's going to be of your salary or whatever the, the, the value of the case is um, to start the bidding, but high enough in your demand to leave room to back down into a negotiated position that you're willing to accept. Um, and eventually um, – so when I sent off the documents, I sent them to <laughs> – uh, forgive me, but I, I have fun in my job and this is one of the parts I really enjoy. I get to send an email to the CEO of a company. Typically, I'm going to have all the internal email addresses, okay? And oftentimes we even – like say a private equity company, I'll send it to the board of directors because the person will have access to that – those. And sometimes 
you know, board of directors of private equity companies want to know, especially the minority shareholders of the board of directors want to know what's happening at the organization. And we send it to the supervisor. We send it to the CEO. We let everybody know. I only have one shot to do this because lawyers can't talk to a company once their attorneys respond back and saying, we represent so-and-so company. So when I send the email, well, guess what happens when you get an email? You open it. You're curious because you know about the issue involving so-and-so employee as the manager. You you could just fire the person. Well, what are they saying now? And they can't not open it. They, they, they open it. They read and they get this affidavit that's attached to it. And they're like, it's a shock and awe factor that's intended in that result because I want them to see the entirety of the problem they themselves, the employer, created. The employer created these fact patterns. The employees just went to work to have a career. The employers made the steps and decisions to do certain things. We're just calling it out. Guess what happens? The employer never, ever writes an affidavit rebuttal back about what the client said in the client narrative. Fact. It never takes place because it's against the employer's interest to do that. Uh, they will eventually do it in an agency file and saying, admit, deny these each paragraph of the, of the affidavit. But they do that after talking with an attorney and they leave the employee to the proof of the matter. But you'll never get back a statement of facts rebutting what you had said in the, in the detailed narrative. So you need to know that. It's, and you really don't care what the employer says, by the way. And, and I also communicated that as well during these two uh, meetings and these consults. You really don't care what the investigation of your internal complaint was by HR. People always ask me the same. Well, they never told me the response. I don't – well, what do you think they're going to say? They're going to say, well, you're right. No, they're not going to say that because it's the game they play. And they're going to basically protect themselves at all costs and lie to you. Lie. Outright just lie to you. And they'll lie to you in legal proceedings as well. I need you to understand that. It happens all the time because the facts given by an employee generally are very, very accurate. Even though my opposing counsel will, you know, they'll, they'll say, no, that's not true. And I understand this aspect that there are two sides to every communication, every story. There are two sides. But when you spend the time on these cases and you read these and develop these narratives for these clients, you get this overwhelming presumption that something's drastically wrong. And I'll give you an example. Um, in one case I did, and I won't give context or time, it's a whistleblower case. We wrote the affidavit narrative and we spelled it all out. Well, what did the employer do? They paid the demand. It was a multiple six-figure, approaching seven-figure response. There was very little negotiation. They just paid it. They maybe bargained down maybe 25000 But it was the power of the affidavit. And actually, there was some stupidity involved as well. Um, the employer told the team after the client was let go – to uh, stop doing something or whatever, and uh, I can't be very more specific, but it was just outright idiocy on the part of the employer. But the point is that the narrative itself, the thing that you were like, you know, it's very hard to write about it, uh, it takes too long, like it resulted in a full value, almost settlement demand being met by an employer because the employer was scared shitless of, the, of what a government entity would do. Okay, so this narrative, I can't emphasize how important it is. And these employers take it very seriously, as opposed to this. 
what do other lawyers do? Okay, just to kind of give you context. Some lawyers will write a lawyer letter. And it's a, uh, a, a discussion by the employer, uh, by the attorney of the employee saying, my client's been harmed X, Y, Z, pay up. Well, that's not really helpful to who? The employer, because they're going to write you a check. Well, how are you going to convince them something happened? They know what they did. But I've learned over the years, 28, I think I'm moving on now. It's moving really fast now in terms of the amount of time I've been doing this. But I've really learned, and I get feedback my opposing counsel that I need you to understand the, 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 this really important aspect. The narrative is very valuable to the employer because they see the facts at a very minute, detailed level and uh, they are allowed – their attorneys will investigate those facts. I mean the, the law firm representing the employer will obviously spend a lot of money and time investigating your fact pattern. Uh, they're not going to tell you the response of it. But it helps them understand the uh, accuracy of the claim. The narrative you write, which is get – it gets uh, orchestrated, curated by a person like myself, an employment attorney – they will um, – the attorneys on the other side will see the curation of what I'm saying in the language of the client narrative, all right? And they'll be able to see the liability, not the stupid lawyer letter that the, some lawyers write saying, you owe my client X, Y, Z because – well, that doesn't help. I mean I'm not joking. I asked opposing counsel at prestigious law firms after we're done and says, what did you think about the affidavit? Did it help you guys understand the case? And of course, presumptively, they all say yes because no one does it. The power of the affidavit is crucial to your case. Large or small, it helps. Okay, It helps explain the, the bare facts and the, the specific facts of what's happened uh, and convince the employer. That's the point of the narrative. Okay, It's not what I'm doing. Yeah, I'm going to put up a website and have podcasts and, and blog posts and yeah, how many cases I litigated over 20 years. Who cares? Okay, It's what matters in the client affidavit that matters. That is the point of what I'm trying to get across to you in changing your focus of – I've been harmed and injured on the initial part of the call and later on I discovered through the, the discussion with me that, oh, the narrative, i got to write one and it's really important and here's why. I'm just giving you examples. The narrative cuts through all the shit the employer gives you and all their game playing. That's the point. Your stories are real. You are the victim of discrimination. You are the victim of a breach of contract. You are being unjustly treated. But it's the facts that have to set you free or support you in terms of what you're, you're saying. But don't just come at it uh, with uh, – I've been – don't let your anger and your emotions overcome your decision-making process or overcome your um, uh, your – digestion of the advice being given to you. This does happen. People will be um, overwhelmed by the circumstance of their case of what took place. I mean, uh, people work and their identities are melded to their work. And, and, and when, they're, when they're fired, it's like getting you know, death in the family. Um, and it's harsh and they lose a part of themselves. And sometimes they can't release it and they can't transition into the transaction I'm trying to describe to them. And, in during this, you know, half hour, hour long call that I'm having and have them get to realize that, you know, there's something I need to do here. There's a mission. I got to convey these facts in an objective way. So 
um, I, 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 this triage that people go through in these phone calls, it is moving and people do transition at the latter part of the call of a sense of relief because someone actually, A, listened, B, told them exactly what the F happened to them by their employer in specific and because it and, and identified the patterns that the employee slash prospective client understood to be true in their own perspective. And it's a really powerful conversation and it it happens all the time. I do these calls every single day. But it just dawned on me, I really needed to share this part of the process, the early stage when you call me, this is what you're going to go through so that when well, you talk to myself or any employment attorney, the National Employment Lawyer Association has attorneys across the country. They're all good folks. They all do the same thing I do, representing employees, and they're there to help you, the National Employment Lawyer Association. So look it up. You find a lawyer in your state. Um, and... When you go through this process, you understand at the end of the call that, A, what are your choice? You can do nothing at all. Two, uh, talk to a lawyer for a half hour, hour and understand the terms of the severance agreement or understand the terms of uh, you need reasonable accommodations or do something or uh, and, or three – you know, you're faced with uh, the possibility of a severance negotiation being one is in front of you now or one's coming to you because you're at the PIP stage or you're, you know, the writing's on the wall and you understand that, okay, do I want to make that investment in legal fees to get an outcome in the future of, you know, severance monies because I'm going to need that once I get let go because don't presume you're going to get severance at the end of your employment because maybe you're not. And how are you going to pay your bills? I mean, we all have bills to pay. So think of the transaction of this very short call with me. Now, from the stage of the initial call of the emotion and anxiety to now faced with the transaction, and just you have to figure out what is your goal? What do you want to happen for you? I don't care what happens in terms of your choice. And that's what I say to everybody. Uh, and it's kind of like I'm doing a consultation with you now as I'm doing this episode. Because I wanted to share with you literally what I go through in this process and what you'll go through in this process, figuring out what is the goal here. Yeah, I know it happened to you. But, all right, get over it. But now what are you going to do with it? And what is, is, is that choice you're making? Is the right choice for you? Um, and is how, what's that choice going to cost you? And I and people ask me all the time, I can't give you an estimate what's going to happen because I can't predict the future. Yes, I know what people pay me. I can keep track and look at data. I have data. But – I can't give you estimates of what takes place because I can't predict your future of how this employers act. We do know some raw data, and I told you before, 80% of the time employers do resolve cases prior to a lawsuit. You may have to file an EOC case to the agency, but that's not public in terms of a Google search. But 80% of the time, you're going to resolve the matter before a lawsuit's filed because the employer, not me, but the employer is making that outcome for you. We just don't know the amount of money they're going to pay you. And the amount of money is really determinant of what your affidavit says. Now do you get the full circle of the analysis and the logic of the process, the affidavit? And you use the attorney and you have to be very um, specific about what you're alleging and you have to be very forceful. And I, I'll leave you this aspect of uh, what I tell people the latter part of the call is the severance negotiation after I send the email to folks through the, through the employer containing the affidavit, the notice of claims and the demand – Later on in the negotiations as we're exchanging counteroffers, I'm going to draft the complaint. Yeah, I know I told you that we're not going to file a lawsuit um, and I, want, I don't want to file a lawsuit. 
But I want the employer to know. And if the employers are listened to, fine. You know, I'm going to you, – you, you have a choice. You can incentivize this particular employee and pay them in negotiation what they want in severance or face the, the gauntlet of a lawsuit in federal court. So I draft a complaint, usually styled as a federal complaint. And I put the fact pattern from the affidavit verbatim. I change it by pronoun and context and grammar, of course, to make it fit because I'm going to write it instead of first person and write it in second person. And so it changes, but it's the same language that the person used in the affidavit now appears in the draft proposed complaint that I'm going to send across to the other side, usually through their attorneys, and they share it with their client. Why do I do that? A, because I'm escalating the shit out of the case and I want to make sh- you know the momentum. You watch a sporting event. Uh, I always think about uh, tennis matches that the U.S. Open. You, know, you feel that momentum when someone's losing because it, and a person is fighting, fighting back. And it, but you feel the momentum on the opposite side when the person's you know winning and you want to be winning. You know, and appear to be aggressive in this um, no no uh, take prisoners approach to the process and force the employer because that's what you are doing by your affidavit. And I, I guess I kind of want to end in that point where you know the culmination of this entire conversation uh, that I'm having again, it's only happening in an hour or I'm sorry, less than an hour, typically a half hour. But I'd say realistically a half hour to an hour because that's how long it takes for you and I to have a conversation and you to realize and me to understand what's happened to you to give you feedback. That complaint is the just the pinnacle of the of the of the negotiation that you're going to go through with the employer, and usually use it at a point in time when parties are. You know, employers spending, you know, $100,000 or more. There's obviously the more money being on the table, there's liability. So that's the bluff that you pull out, okay? So if you didn't know it, um, more money on the table, employer's wrong, okay? Simple. Everybody understands that. Um, that's your task. And the uh, you have to read the tea leaves through the numbers, so to speak. Um, the employer's not going to tell you you're right, okay? So you got to read the numbers. If it's two, $300,000, you know you're on the target, your affidavit did its job. Now the complaint does its job. What are you doing with the, aff- the the complaint? You're telling the employer that within a very short window of time, I'm going to file this lawsuit. Typically, 90 days if you uh, are an EOC case and you got a I I request a notice of right to sue, and I, I box the employer into a time frame. I let the clock tick because people can't stand it and they're watching the deadlines. So, as we're approaching the 90th day, which happens all the time, employers get scared. Sorry. Yeah, it's true. Employers get scared, scared of multiple aspects of public PR debacle, uh, government calling, uh, SEC, uh, Securities Exchange Commission inquiring, you name it. And that's the point of what I'm trying to get across to you, that you have so much information at your disposal. And if you share it in such a very unique way through your affidavit and eventually through the draft complaint and negotiations, you can push that employer, push them into the position you want them to pay you money based upon legitimate facts and legitimate claims. That is a process that's used time and time again, 80% of the time. You didn't know that because where are you going to get that information? It's not out there. But now you know that's the process. And employers are scared shitless of you. When you hit the money correctly in your affidavit by your facts, I, I can't tell you the pleasure I get 
and the client's pleasure, when they start to hear the ring, uh, like playing a pinball machine and get the, the numbers start flying up and, you know, you're, you're more money being flown, thrown at you because they want to convince you to, to shut the hell up and go away and sign a release agreement uh, because they want you under wraps because you call them out. That's the game the employers play. Okay. It's real. It involved millions, millions of dollars every single year if not billions of dollars. There's a high stakes game that you're part of a system and you need to know how to play it. These are the games employers play, but these are the games employees play. They're not games, they're claims because things happen to them. And if you didn't find this information valuable, then you're out of your mind because this is exactly what's happening every day. I didn't pause literally once in this entire ep uh, episode with you because I'm literally sharing with you what I go through every single effing day with these employers. They are abusing you. It's dysfunctional. And I'm now giving you tools to fight back without spending a fortune doing it, but being effective. But at all, all of it is based upon your affidavit. Your affidavit is gold if you have those facts. And so there you have it. I've shared with you what I wanted to share, uh, what I would do through a consultation. Now you would hear that. And it's a level of detail that should be overwhelming and because there's so much information and choices in front of you and so much analysis you need to look at, but also in a, an awakening that takes place for you that you need to go through. Um, and I, if I'm shifting you, great. I've just touched one person today. Fine. I've done my task. Share it with somebody else. But that's what's happening in every single employment across the country, every single job place. This is happening to someone every single day across the country. How would I know that? Well, because I have clients across the country. So I'm exposed to a variety of situations across the country, but also all these patterns, all these games employers play. So there you have it. That's what a consultation would look like. That's what I wanted to share with you. Um, both of these individuals were transferred over to a place of readiness to make choices, whatever their goal was. But that's the process you go through when you talk to me on the phone. Hope you found it really helpful and it helps you kind of deal with it situation you're having. Until next time, have a great day. If you like the Employee Survival Guide, I'd really encourage you to leave a review. Uh, we try really hard to uh, produce information to you uh, that's informative, that's uh, timely, that you can actually use and solve problems on your own and at your employment. So if you'd uh, like to leave a review anywhere you listen to our podcast, please do so. And leave five stars because anything less than five is really not as good, right? Uh, I'll keep it up. I'll keep the standards up. I'll keep the uh, information flowing at you. Um, if you'd like to send me an email and ask me a question, I'll actually review it and post it on there. Uh, you can send it to M. C-A-R-E-Y at C-A-P-C-Law.com. That's capclaw.com.